Okay, we're gonna get going. So, so welcome all. It's cold out there. Uh, but if you think you travel a long way, James came from London and had his first meeting this morning in London, right? Yeah, it's been a long day. Yeah, so it's been a long day, so you didn't have as long days. But then again, you're not gonna live till 150, so, you know. Uh, I want to have a discussion with James, uh, and then we're going to open it up for q James and I met at a dinner party um, that was a curious dinner party, and we were sitting next to one another, and we ended up, uh, it was an interesting group of people, including Uma Thurman, who was there, and we ended up arguing about, uh, about death and longevity, and should, you know, should, you, should we be trying to get people to... Should we be giving people tools to live longer, or should we be trying to get people to die more gracefully? And what does that mean, and sort of have that discussion? So we're going to pick up on some of that tonight. But let me just start at the top. So James, your bio, your Twitter bio says, says stem cell biologist, out to build biotech companies focused on age-related diseases. That's as short a summary as I could come up with. Okay, so tell us, you've got more characters here, so tell us a bit yeah. more. So, so my background is as a, um, as a scientist. So I did my undergraduate work focused on immunology and did a PhD in stem cell biology focused on leukemia and gene therapy. Um, but my, the reason I became a scientist is because I wanted to work on aging. And, and in fact, my guiding thesis is that we are treating the major diseases of aging, cancer, dementia, heart disease, wrong. That we have our, our understanding of these diseases has gone exponential in the last 30 years. Um, but despite our massively increased understanding and what these diseases are and what causes them, we're still waiting for them to emerge and then deploying those tools to try to unwind incredibly complex pathologies. And that's a losing battle that the only way we're ever gonna develop cures for these diseases is if we flip the script a little bit and approach them proactively and preventatively, targeting the, um, targeting the damage that builds up before a disease emerges. And so I decided to spend my life affecting that change somehow. So after my PhD, I um, wanted to go learn how to build drugs. I ended up working here in New York as a consultant for pharma companies, where I thought I was gonna be doing a lot of early stage R&D work for them, but ended up as an asset scout, because pharmas don't do their own R&D anymore. Um, the whole, like, so our pharma used to be two businesses. It used to be finding new ideas for making drugs, and then it would be the final approvals and distribution. And the first part has completely evaporated, or is in the last stages of evaporating. It's been replaced by a venture capital ecosystem. VCs and entrepreneurs and scientists getting together and making this little startup voodoo um, happen. Um, and so I decided to move into that and started my own VC fund with a, with a group of, of uh, family offices to see if, the, we, if we could do a venture builder around the topic of longevity. Um, that was about four years ago. And um, that was kind of the, the first attempt that anyone made of creating a venture builder in that space. Um, it's been relatively successful. And so I actually left that earlier this year to create a platform company, not so different as we found out from John's idea uh, around Betaworks, to take a bunch of different shots on goal um, underneath this general theme of finding 
drugs that can be FDA approved that can both treat and repair some of the damage that builds up as we age, but also get approved and go through an FDA trial for safety and efficacy for some disease that's not aging uh, to make valuable companies in the shorter term. That's my little biography. Thank you. So, and I want to pull out, I mean, you talk about aging as a disease, right? Yes and no. Okay. I, I think we get diseases because we age. So if you look at the risk factors of all of the major things that kill us now, heart disease and cancer and this kind of stuff, the risk is goes up exponentially as we get older. And starting around 60 to 65, um, those curves start going exponential. And so if you look at all of these risks going up together, it's hard not to conclude that there's something going on upstream that's driving these risks together. And so there are people in my community that say we need to define aging as a disease in order to motivate drug developers to do something about it. And I think that that's actually a waste of time. Um, I think that we can get a very long way not thinking of aging as a single disease, but instead thinking of the biology of aging. And sorry for splitting hairs here, but, but you know this is a big debate in my space. Um, thinking of the biology of aging as the risk factor for all of these different diseases. And if we just think of it that way, then we don't need to undergo any massive regulatory shift because we can already get new medicines approved for their ability to prevent drugs. We just need to create the pathways to do that. And so it's still a scientific question, not a regulatory question, which is, I think, what the, the arg this argument of define aging as a disease is predicated on the idea that things aren't happening because of a regulatory problem. And you believe that, well, how old do you think you're going to live to? Um, so now we can get into the fun part of this yeah, specific yeah. conversation, right? So from a philosophical standpoint, the way that I infuse meaning in my own life is by thinking of myself as an organism that does not expire. And so that doesn't mean that I think I'm going to live to 150 or 200 or 1,000 or 80. Um, but in order, to, in order to feel that the things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis matter and mean something, the way that that works in my mind, I need to first have the faith that I do not expire. Um, because that means that I will be there to see the consequences of my actions, so therefore I care about the consequences of my actions. That's super interesting. We had a, we had a discussion uh, about two weeks ago here with Yancey Strickler. Uh, the Kickstarter guy, Kickstarter right? Kickstarter guy yeah. who's just written a book and is thinking a lot about sort of trying to re-architect and rethink the way that incentives work within companies mm -hmm. and of how companies think of, you know, sort of their stakeholders. And one of the things he said is he said, you know, I had to think about this very carefully because I realized that what I was embarking upon was like a 30 to 50 year project and I probably wouldn't be around to see the results. And he said, you know, I thought about that for a bit and then I came to terms with it and I actually feel good about it. You're like, you're like, I don't want to, 
I don't want to come to terms with it, or I don't want. I want to come to terms with the alternative that I'm not going to assume so, that will happen. So I think two answers to that. One is one is very self-focused. So the the self-centered version of the of this for me is just like. I got interested in space as a kid, and that, that's actually, I, would, I joke sometimes that I became a bi biologist because I wanted to be an astronaut. And I, I realized that if I ever wanted to live in space, like I wasn't going to get the time to, for the infrastructure and the technologies to develop, I would be old and dead before the things in space that I wanted to be a part of happened. Um, and so, so part of it is just like a love of what life is and a desire to make bets and and spend my time on problems that I think are big and big enough to be worth solving, and yeah, and to your point, I needed a way of getting over Yancey's uh, problem, yeah. in, and I couldn't do that in any other way than thinking of myself as an indefinite creature. On a more pragmatic side. Um, and a less philosophical one, I think that the way of effecting real change to some of these big problems is, and this is similar, it's funny you were talking about how to align incentives, incentives in corporations, I believe that we all respond excellently to incentives. And so when we have a society that is ruled primarily by 50, 60, and 70 year olds, if we can align their incentives with the next generation of people by convincing them that they will still be around in 50 years to see the results of climate change or you know, various other activities. Um, social instability is a result of, of you know, unnecessary wealth extraction, whatever it is. Uh, I think that we will get people to think more long-term. It won't solve all, the pro all of the ills, but I think if people thought of themselves this is my optimism uh, around life uh, <laughs> shining through a little bit. But I think if people thought of themselves as having to be around for a very long time to truly experience the consequences of their actions, they would behave in a more ethical way than they do right now. Not a perfectly ethical way. We know that humans are bad at long-term thinking generally, but in a more ethical way. And, and uh, I want to go a little bit further, then we're going to go back to sort of death and some, some bigger topics. but. But specifically on this, you know, our industry generally, I mean, the tech industry is sort of, we have a sort of short-termism, you know, it's just, you know, it hangs over everything that we do, right? And so we have, you know, venture funds which drive short-term behavior. We have sort of agile development, you know, uh, the, the entire process by how we build things, push betas into market, get a result, if it doesn't work, back off do something else, pivot, do something else, pivot, do something else. I mean, I've seen countless examples in my career of people put things in market, they don't work, they back off, they go off, do something else, and then somebody else puts something in market that is like five degrees off that, and mm -hmm. it actually works. And so, like time, persistence, and durability. How do you think about, because you're having to now talk to investors and entrepreneurs with a sort of, you know, 10, 20 year time horizon. So how do, you, how do you approach that? So because this is a fun conversation, yeah. I'm going to give you a slightly orthogonal answer. Um, and hopefully it's not too complex. So if I veer way off track, stop me. Yeah. 
Um, so I did not start out as an entrepreneur. I actually got interested in economics because I was studying the mathematics of evolutionary biology. And when you look at the math of how evolution works, good evolution follows two, um, two rules. The first is that, um, is that things evolve to, go, to get slightly better and better over time through competitive structures, right? So the more little bits of rapid competition that you have to be what we call finding the local maxima, mm -hmm. the better evolutionary systems work. And so I think of that first part of what you're talking about, this kind of entrepreneurial short-termism, this is, in my mind, a very nice equivalence to what we see in evolution of like different groups finding short-term maxima. Mm -hmm. and, and then in order to, so, so there's this concept in evolution of a landscape, right? That, that groups compete because they, they start here and you have an idea or uh, an organism and you create some variants and they kind of spread out and some of them go a little bit higher on the, uh, on the geography and some of them go lower. And then they get better and better and better until they reach the top of this hill. And that's your best idea that you can get starting from this line of thinking. But there might be in this landscape, there might be a mountain over here. And so, um, so one of the, the amazing things that we see very occasionally in evolution is you'll have some idea or an organism that starts here and it will dramatically mutate or you'll have another organism that comes from a completely different direction to occupy a new niche and finds the base of a new mountain to create a new local maxima. <coughs> and so, so when I think about entrepreneurial ecosystems, um, it's a balance of two things. How do you conceptualize this landscape of, of evolutionary space in a topic like my, my world, which is longevity interventions, right? What do we know about that, that geography right now? And how can we make appropriate short-term bets to reach the local maxima in all of the spaces that we currently understand while simultaneously scattering enough little you know, paratroopers uh, to see if there's, if there's a, a foothill of a big mountain somewhere around? And, and this is kind of like my very orthogonal answer of coming at like why I didn't want to go build a company, uh, like a single asset bet on you know, right. the stem cell technology I did my PhD on, that I wanted to, to cut across 15, 20 different, uh, different assets and then build a, a, a company that could churn through and find what good ideas were and what bad ideas were and kill those good ideas, or sorry, kill the bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Kill the bad ideas quickly and let the good ideas fly. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I hope yeah. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, it does, and also to have very tight feedback loops between those. E yeah. Exactly, and so I think you need those tight feedback loops and those short iteration times yeah. that we see in the tech industry, and I think that that's what's driving the growth in the biotech industry is that we can do tighter and tighter feedback loops than we ever used to be able to, right. um, because it's this evolutionary process that's that's happening. So um, I'm going to back off this branch because I got a lot more questions on it okay. and there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but I think that, so let's go back to aging. So how old do you think it is reasonable for somebody today to expect to be able to live to? So 
when understanding life expectancy projections, right now in the US, the life expectancy of a man is 78 years and a woman is 82 years. Um, the way that life expectancy is calculated is not by looking forward, but by looking backward. So life expectancy is, you know, let's say roughly 80 years if you were born in 1940. The life expectancy of someone born today, we don't know. And, and so, <clears throat> so in order to understand what the life expectancy of someone born today or like those of us in the room would be, we need to understand the velocity of the change in the technology. And so for the past century, uh, let's take half century, for the past 50 years, every decade, we've added about two years of extra life to Americans in the past 50 years. So that means that we're at 0.2 years per year on the velocity of our technology to improve our health right now. And so the question of how long are we going to live um, today really depends on what we can do to this vector. Will it flatten out or will it increase? And my view is that within the next 20 years, we can create a suite of technologies focused on longevity um, and the, this basic biology of aging that will increase that vector at least temporarily above one. So we will be gaining more than one year of extra healthy life for every year of technology. And then the big question that we don't know the answer to yet is that when we start combining the, in the interventions together and, and you know, solve multiple types of damage that builds up at the same time, will that give synergistic results to allow us to keep that number above one for another 20 or another 40 years? Or will we encounter some new barrier that prevents us from living longer, right? If you go back 100 years, the three leading causes of death were uh, influenza, pneumonia, and tuberculosis. And when we solved those problems, cancer and heart disease and dementia kind of came up as the new big killers because we were living into our 70s, generally, instead of into our 40s. Um, and so when we solve these things by you know, preventing them indefinitely, then what is it going, what's going to come up that creates a new hard wall for us, and what will that burden be? Right. And I think that the most likely thing that's going to come up, the biggest unknown in this space, if we can achieve all of this, is what our brains can handle. Um, whether a 120-year-old brain can stay intact enough to feel like a human. So just to go through the math, somebody who's in their 40 now, yeah. Under current sort of where that curve is running now, they get to 80, but then they're going to get another, they get yeah, another they get eight years something like or that. something like that. So they're probably going to end up 88, a little bit less if they're male, a little bit more if they're female. Yeah. But that curve is going to start. Yeah. So, so I think that there's a better than 50% chance that someone in their 50s today will be able to, on average, live above 100 better than 50% chance. And I think that there's a 20% chance that people in their 50s today could live on average over 110. Um, that's starting, and, and then beyond that, we can't really know. 
because because there's so many unknowns past so, that. So so let's run at some scenarios because I think this uh, this is fascinating. So that let's assume that from a uh, technology the techno let's assume the technology works that we do astounding things mm -hmm. right and you do amazing things and that this and that everybody here you know ends up with an average life expectancy of in the sort of 120 130 140 something range right um, but um, but we've all got dementia <laughs> um, <laughs> What does that do for society, and how should society think about it, right? Because, you know, so so if if we end up all at one twenty, all with dementia, I would argue that we didn't do a great job. In fact, but you'd be you'd have dementia. <laughs> okay, so if I'm, I may not make any arguments. Yeah. Um, and and so. I guess two, two quick pieces and then we can get to that. The first is that all of the work that I'm doing is based on things that we've shown actually work in mice, right? So we can extend the lifespan of mice relatively well. And there are 75 different ways that scientists have discovered to extend the lifespan of mice. And there is not one of those 75 ways targeting the basic biology of aging to extend lifespan that doesn't also increase the health span. So anything that you do to extend life keeps the health of the mouse at 100% longer, and then this, the rate of decline is either the same as the shorter-lived mouse or more abrupt. And so my prediction would be is that if we push our lifespans to 120 instead of 80, that just as we spend, let's say, 70 to 80 sick and declining now, that we would spend 110 to 110, uh, 120 declining in, an, in this scenario, and we might still get dementia and cancer, and it might be more dementia and less heart disease if we solve things at different rates. Um, but I think that that's an overall hugely positive story for society. If we achieve lifespan extension without health span extension, we all still get dementia in our 80s and then our, our, our 70s, and then our yeah, bodies yeah. work for another yeah. 40 years, then we haven't done anything helpful at all. Um, and I think that that's, that's the opposite direction of where we would want to go. Right, right. And, and so the research that's taking place today, um, which, which are the key universities that seem to be dominating in this and that you're most interested in the work coming out of? Um, the cool thing about science compared to startups uh, is that startups tend to be highly geographically localized, right? You can go to the Bay Area, you can go to New York, in biotech you go to Boston, and, and the majority of the entrepreneurial ecosystems are there. Science is much more spread out. Um, and so while there are tons of great scientists at Harvard and Stanford, um, Rockefeller, Columbia, wherever, the, the vast majority of great research is being done outside of these capital-rich hubs. And so a big part of my strategy, because I'm so focused on the basic science, and there are only you know, 200 scientists, 300 scientists in the world that I can work with to start companies, um, I instead reached out to those, have been reaching out to those scientists wherever they are, and 
um, kind of tap into their virtual networks of we are scientists all working on aging. And we'll get together a few times a year to have conferences and drink sangria together. Um, and, and you know, email back and forth because these are the people we like talking to because this is, this is our topic. Um, and, and so I've started companies with professors from Utrecht in the Netherlands and Birmingham in the UK and Graz in Austria and Missouri and a guy from Harvard and a guy from Johns Hopkins and a guy from Novato, California, just wherever they happen to be. So it's, it's a really highly distributed, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's important, well, I guess one last piece is that an important part of this is that a company can't exist in this sort of distributed way yeah. because there's no access to capital. So I can go to the University of Wisconsin and pull out a technology from, and like University of Wisconsin is a great research university. The scientist working there is a super, super smart guy. But then when I pull out that technology, I want to set the company up in a New York or Boston or a San Francisco and put my executive team there and have them, or me, connect to the capital and connect to the organizational and operational resources to build this into a drug. Um, but the, the core science is being done and can be done in a very distributed way. Uh, how, how do you think about, so, you know, in the domain of AI, there's a lot of conversation right now around the, uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, in computer vision, machine learning, AI, China's role, sort of state-driven um, innovation um, that's taking place in China with, you know, sort of very different understanding of data access controls very different level of commitment from um, parts of the state and sort of like almost like a national agenda that we're going to drive AI and we're going to use data in a whole ways which I think we're st just debating or barely debating whether they're ethically acceptable. Um, as it relates to uh, your domain, um, you know, are there any countries like as, you know, not to pick on any of them, but as Singapore or like any of these sort of uh, countries that have a sort of fairly clear history of being sort of like state-driven um, innovation actually said, we're gonna, we're gonna innovate here and we're gonna actually drive a population to 100 plus? So the short version of that is yes. And I think Singapore is actually the best example. Um, how many of you guys in this room have heard about metformin as a possible anti-aging drug? A, a few. So, so there's a, a diabetes drug that has been around for 40 years called metformin, um, which is known to be relatively safe. And about a decade ago, a group of scientists studying aging showed that if you gave metformin to a mouse, it would extend its healthy lifespan by five to 10%. And then, because that was kind of an interesting <coughs> finding, some researchers inspired by that paper looked at the health records of 400,000 people in the UK that had, were diabetics taking metformin and showed that they actually had lower rates of cancer and Alzheimer's disease than healthy people of the same age without diabetes, which was an, incredibly, an incredible finding because normally diabetes is associated with higher risks of cancer and dementia. And so based on that, the FDA actually approved the start of a clinical trial to use metformin prophylactically to slow aging. 
And well, this, but, but interestingly, that trial hasn't started yet because there's no resources to pour into it in the US because no one makes money. It's one of the cheapest drugs in the world. It's 10 cents a pill. I'm, I'm very close with the, the guy who got this trial approved by the FDA and has spent his career, like, or the, at least the last couple years, revving this up. He got a call, blind, from one of the very high ministers in Singapore who, was at, who asked him, very bluntly, should we put metformin in our water supply? <laughs> to which I think he gave the right scientific answer. No. Not yet. But this is the kind of thinking that these more authoritarian, more collectivist type uh, type countries are able to do, which is both interesting and frightening. Um, there's another post-Soviet dictator that has been in touch with a friend of mine who wanted to reform their entire country into being one large testing site for different possible anti-aging drugs um, because the, the dictator, he's getting old. He's in his He's in his 60s, and so he's like, I want to know what works, and I've got 100 million people, not 100 million, but, but maybe 15 million people, and, so, and, and a lot of money, and so we can do all sorts of great clinical trials here. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's not going to be where the innovation in this space happens. Most of the world still looks to the US and to our FDA as the engine for discovering truth in these, these realms. Um, and so my entire focus has been to shun those sorts of opportunities uh, and focus on how we can work with, with the US Food and Drug Administration to find ways of testing whether these things really work in people. Anyway, those are a couple of yeah. interesting stories. Uh, Maybe so I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, no. So, so let's talk about death a bit, and then um, chewy subject. Um, and so, uh, and then I, I will open it up for questions about another ten minutes. I could go on for a long time, but I understand you're jet lagged, and, and uh, yeah, obviously I so could go on for a long time yeah, too. So yeah. Um, but um, so, uh, you know, we talked about one scenario, which is that you know that we uh, end up living until you know hundred plus. And you know, dementia kicks in sooner rather than later. It, un, under any of these, under that scenario, under the sort of state-driven scenario, I, the question that comes up for me is, how can we, as a society and as a species, start to think about, um, you know, questions around death, right? So, uh, choice, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of being able to make that choice that hey, this is, you know, I, I actually don't want to drink the water, <laughs> you know, that, uh, uh, and, and I don't want to live longer. I want to actually, uh, I want to die, so choice around death. Uh, secondly is that how do we think about, um, uh, you know, building the, um, the cultural infrastructure, science, support to let people die well, right? And, you know, I spent, we talked about this at dinner, but I spent you know uh, about six months with somebody helping them die, and it's hard, 
it's I, it's not only it's not only emotionally hard <coughs> like the structure and the systems that we have right now um, you can't really talk to doctors about it it's very hard to do and so how do we how do we make that happen in parallel yeah the, there are two major issues here that I think we should separate because they're they're quite distinct conversations the first is the philosophical one of like how should we think about death and the second is the more pragmatic practical one of like what can we be doing the mechanic the mechanics of this right so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the mechanics because I think it's conceptually easier although practically more difficult yeah um, which is that for a country that spends nearly a trillion dollars a year on dying people, we are very bad at thinking about death. Um, there's this great book called Being Mortal it's great. by Atul Gawande. Um, very good book. That, that is kind of from the perspective of a physician that was, an, I think he was an ER physician, and then he started running a geriatrics practice um, and, and realized how little attention, so how, how much of physician's effort is directed towards treating people with diseases of aging, artery hardening, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, and how little we focus on the psychological and practical elements of dying people. Um, and, and we've really created a system where there is so little dignity and, and satis it's hard to be satisfied with death, but, but I think dignity is the best word that I can think Dig of. Dignity is a great word because I think that death is a, I think death's actually, I've learned it's a process. We all think about it as an event. Yes. God forbid somebody gets hit by a car, that's an event. But a natural death is a process. Yeah. And it's a process for the individual and it's also a process for the family. For the and for the community around, and so and and yeah, dignity is a good word. So so I think that there are two pieces that we can do on a practical level to make this much better than it is very quickly, and uh, but it's very politically challenging to do this. The first is that we need to make legal Kevorkianism, right? If somebody wants to die and chooses to stop living, that choice should be available to them. Yeah. And right now it's not. Um, and, and it like technically is, so I had a, one of my closest friends, his grandfather died of Alzheimer's disease last year, and he's been <coughs> gone for seven years. Um, so he was just waiting, right? There's no mind, there's no recognition for seven years. And then finally, when he developed a pneumonia, there was this decision, and it's just heartbreaking, um, that, that the doctors were like, we can't do anything about this, but like, he's either gonna die of the pneumonia, because it's resistant to the antibiotics, and he's already having trouble breathing, and we can just stop feeding him, yeah, and he will pass. And so that's how he died. He starved. He yeah. starved yeah. to death. At, at the age of like 94 yeah. with dementia. And that's how, and, and so like as this was happening, my, my friend intervened and was like yelling at these doctors. And so eventually they gave him enough morphine that before he, you know, on day two or three, when the doctors were like, this is what we have to do, he browbeat them enough to, so that he passed 
into a coma and then didn't recover from the coma, was not put on life support, and died that way before he truly starved right. to death. But that was right. the plan. And, and technology, technology is is actually making some of this worse, right? So um, you know, I've lost both of my parents, but when my dad was dying, which was about 15 years ago, they you know gave us uh, you know some morphine. He was at home. And they said, you know, when you need to administer this. And my mom, you know, was during the war, she was a nurse, so she knew how to do administer morphine. And then when time came, we just gave him a lot. And that was that, right? Mm -hmm. So when my mom, you know, got sick two years ago, um, and she was 92, right? So she'd lived an amazing life, but she was dying. Um, you know, we brought her home in hospice, and uh, they said, okay, we're, you know, let's explain to you the morphine. I was like, okay, I get it, you're gonna put it in the fridge. And they said, no, no, no. The way that we do it now is that we have an intravenous IV and there is a little unit that, you know, pumps X amount of morphine per hour and, you know, just enough to keep her, you know, uh, so she's not in pain. And I said, I said, okay, great. Um, and what's the password on it? Can I refill it? And they were like, no, you can't touch it. So basically, technology is now, you know, sort of administering uh, morphine, and so it sort of like cuts off. You know, yeah. As an as an individual, you have like fewer options yeah. as we sort of like increase the sort of the, the technological support, but also technological control. Exactly, and 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 I think that as younger individuals, we've been in some ways almost too willing to outsource a lot of the hard thinking and hard decisions, at least in the abstract, to doctors and physicians. Oh, these are the people who deal with this. They should be helping us make these decisions, making sure we don't make mistakes. But then in the day-to-day -day practice of this, you have situations exactly like this one where it feels awful. Right. Um, yeah, so I agree with number one because because if we extend if we extend our lives, right, and and if we all end up so like starting to have dementia, we've got to have like there has to be a culture where it's acceptable for people to say, you know what, I don't want to live like this. I completely agree. Yeah. So then the number two on the practical side. So so number one, you know, I can you can imagine trying to pass this through our current Congress. Um, number two has actually already been tried to pass through the current Congress as a part of the Affordable Care Act. So when Obama, these are the death panels, right? This is related to. <laughs> yes. You spoiled my punchline. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Um, <laughs> I know this story. Keep going. Sorry. Um, yeah. So so when Obama became president, he wanted to you know revo uh, rework healthcare, and and as part of the effort to do that, they did a survey of Medicare spending, right? Which is the the program that primarily all of our old people are on, and. And they wanted to calculate Medicare spending per capita on the zip code level. And when they did this, they found one particular zip code in the middle of Wisconsin that had dramatically lower healthcare costs, 40% lower than the mean for the rest of the country, a huge outlier. And, and so they were like, what is going on in like central Wisconsin? Are these people like all vegetable farmers? Are they like <laughs> bicycling to work or uh, you know, going to finish saunas? What's going on? And there was nothing particularly special about these people. They were primarily more overweight than average, primarily eating more red meat, 
um, smoking more than the average in, in the US, but the medical costs were so low. And so he deployed a team to go talk to, to this, uh, to go figure out what was going on in this county in the middle of Wisconsin. And it turns out, small place, there's only about 50,000 people in, in this county, and there's only one hospital. And every single doctor in this hospital had been trained by one guy. And this one guy, this geriatrician, was fanatical about, create, about getting every single resident in the catchment area of his hospital to sign a form on their 50th birthday of whether they would like to be put on life support or not, if they, like basically a DNR, right, a do not resuscitate. If you are, will be put on life support in order to save your life, would you like us to put you on the machine or not? That was the only thing that he did. And just by getting this form from all of these people, he was able to cut healthcare costs by 40%. Um, because so much of the work that we do is, is in those last stages of life, especially for Medicare, right? So if you look at insurance spending as a whole and you go for people below 65, it doesn't cut 40% of all those costs, but this is the 65 plus care. So did most people sign no? Exactly, most people said, we do not want to be resuscitated. <coughs> and, and so, but when this was spun into the political sphere, sphere, right? All of a sudden now you had these doctors who were going to review whether your do not resuscitate, whether your specific situation qualified for your do not resuscitate election. Um, and they were the ones that were gonna be able to make the decision. Because the problem is that the, in the moment, the families, like the wife or the son, will often not honor a DNR, even if one is already filled out, right? That, that you know, mom goes into a coma and son says like, no, do everything. I will take every chance that I can to bring her, to bring her back and to get her for longer. Um, and, and most people I know end up regretting that decision. Uh, and it even happens with doctors. It happened with exactly. doctors where the doctors will find some fork where they'll say, wait, we can maybe operate here. And then they come to the family and say, okay, your mom signed the DNR, but we want you to waive it because we're gonna try this. Yep. And so anyway, so, and so, so. And then you as a family are just like, you're like, well shit, we should try it. Yeah. And so, so this became the famously divisive death panel from, from the Obama Healthcare Act that was ultimately removed from the, the Affordable Care Act in order to get it to pass Congress. Um, and so we were almost in a world where we would have all been electing whether we want to be put on life support or not, um, but that was not. Yeah, you can see situation. just how in the, in the sort of highly politicized, polarized environment like we're in right now, some of these questions and just figuring this stuff out, right, we can't seem to have con conversations about gun control, we can't seem to, I mean, it's just like it's... it's all, all nuance is lost, yeah. right? That, that's the reality of the political world that we live in, is that any sort of nuanced questions are just being ignored. And, and because any nuanced question can, inher can inherently have a dramatically good side and a dramatically bad side that are both incorrect, um, we're only ever hearing these two polarized sides of, of any nuanced <coughs> issue, which is stalling 
any progress on the meat real thing. I'm not a very political optimist, despite yeah. my technological so optimism. I'm, uh, I'm going to open it up. Um, I'm going to ask one last question, which I think some other people here may have, which is, OK, what should I do um, to, um, to increase longevity? So what are the two, three things you think I should do? So, so there are two waves of things that we can do right now. The first wave, I think, is the stuff that we know will work to move us from the mean into the you know, one or two standard deviations above normal. Right? So this would be if our, our expectancy for life is 80 years right now, what are the things that we can do to, to live an expectancy of 84, 85 uh, instead, kind of shift, shift our, our statistical probability? Um, and I think that there, there are just three very simple things here. Number one, get enough sleep. Lack of sleep is literally a fast aging syndrome. So if you, like, you can make mice live shorter and look exactly like fast aging just by turning the lights on and off in the middle of the night at random hours. Um, like, it, it, it is dramatic too. It's like 25% differences. Um, so getting enough sleep at regular hours, as what long is, as you need to What be, is enough? Depends on the person. For most of us, it's between seven and a half and nine hours. Uh, I try to get seven yeah. every, every night. There are about 3% of the population, 2% of the population have a gene that allows them to sleep only four or five um, and get enough rest from that. I'm forever jealous of those people. Um, I think that for every one of those people, there are 10 people that claim to have that gene. Um, and, and so, so I just let myself sleep as long as I need and then try to wake up naturally uh, as much as you can. Number two in that category is good diet. Uh, I'm not a, a fascist on this. My, my joke is that I always follow the advice of Mae West. Everything in moderation, especially moderation. Um, so like, I, I'm not vegan, although I think the vegan diet is good, but it's like, just don't eat too much sugar. Don't overeat. Don't get diabetes. Don't drink too much alcohol. Uh, definitely don't smoke. But like, maintain a decent diet. Don't have too much red meat. Don't have too much tuna, which has a lot of mercury in it. But eat, you know, some fish is fine. Vegetarian is fine. Animal protein is fine. Blah blah blah. The the only thing that we know for sure on diet, other than have a moderate diet, and we'll get to fasting in a sec, um, is to avoid having a diet that's more than 20% of your calories from protein. We can futz around with carbs and fats as much as we want. Um, doesn't change lifespan in, in either human or animal studies, but as soon as protein levels go above 20% of calories, lifespan starts going down. Um, and that's a big deal, right? Because that is contrary to at least what most people, it, sort it's of like how they construct their diet. Is that all protein? Any protein. So plant-based as well? Yep. And it could because it has to do um, more with how our body metabolizes the nitrogens that are left over from protein when we start using proteins as calories. We want to use our proteins as building blocks, not, not use it primarily as a source for creating sugar for, for our bodies, because there are, are negative side effects of doing that. Um, and, and then the, the corollary of that is fasting. Um, so as part of not 
eating too much, many folks that I know, um, sorry, many folks that I know like to fast. The rationale for this is that, and we could talk a lot more about fasting, I want to give a, an expedient answer, um, is that we didn't evolve to have three meals, three square meals a day. We evolved, and in fact, almost all animals evolved to have feast periods and famine periods. And so many of our cellular recycling mechanisms that tear down misfolded proteins and oxidized fats in our cell walls, they have been evolutionarily tied to fasting because it was when food wasn't around that we wanted to ramp up those recycling mechanisms to break down the proteins and break down the fats to make new ones when there was no food there. And so um, either by skipping breakfast or skipping one meal a day and only eating for a six to eight hour window every day, or by doing a 24 hour fast once to twice a week, you can turn on these recycling programs regularly in a way that they're basically never turned on when, uh, when we're eating three meals a day, because it takes about 14 to 15 hours for most people of not eating to turn these mechanisms on. So you need to have 14, 15 hours of not eating and then a little bit of time afterwards. Uh, and so you can have in the intermittent fasting method that gives you like two, three, four hours a day of this, um, depending on how long you go. And then for the, um, for the 24 hour, it gives you like 10, 10 hours of it once a week. Um, so I do the 10 hour, or sorry, the 24 hour fasts once a week. And then I do a five day low calorie fast that also turns this on 500 calories just from plants um, once every four months. Um, and then the last thing in this first category, I'm sorry, super long answer. Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing in the first category is exercise. So regular exercise, just getting out there and moving uh, is a huge part of this, but this is mostly to avoid cardiovascular disease. Right, so you don't need to have huge muscles. You don't need to be like, how do I optimize my Olympic fitness? It's really, how do I never get to the point where I will be wobbly and fall? And so flexibility is most important. I think yoga is an excellent way of doing this. I do yoga three, four times a week. Um, try to run or swim regularly to get some cardiovascular exercise. And then um, a little bit of muscle training, but I don't go crazy. Some people like more, some people like less. Okay. So those are the three. And then the second category is supplements. If anyone oh. wants a big supplement list, um, I can actually give it to John. We can, yeah. we can send this out. Uh, there, we wrote a 10-page thing for all the investors of our, our last raise because we got this question a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I thought somebody would want us, so I just mm -hmm. grabbed it. Yeah. just wanted that you'd be shocked about what about me. So if I am interested in this topic, like both from a science perspective and philosophically, have a, a reading list, and I think this would be another great thing to distribute in the group. Um, so there are, there is not in my mind a comprehensive work that can really get you up to speed with the space because it's still, it's still both very messy uh, and, and new and divided in, different, in the ways that different people look at it. There are, there's a book now that's 13 years old, written by Aubrey de Grey, who some of you guys might have heard of. He is like the scion of this anti-aging field called, and the book is called Ending Aging, which is a rather prescient roadmap 
of what's going to happen with the wrong timelines um, th that I have always liked. Um, but the scientific pieces within that, the individual strategies, are not that relevant anymore. But, but the idea and the concepts are right. Another book came out just two months ago, um, which is by David Sinclair, who's a Harvard geneticist um, that has discovered some of the, the most famous anti-aging mechanisms in mice. And that book is called Lifespan. Um, and he has actually a very different view on what to do about aging than me and a lot of other folks in this field. And the pro this is kind of the problem with books, is that usually when you write a book, you have one thing to say. And the problem with aging biology is it's not a one thing to say kind of story. Uh, in my mind, there's a bunch of different things. There's like at least nine different problems that we have to solve in order to make a person stop aging. Uh, and, and Sinclair's thesis is like, yes, there's nine different things, but they're all underpinned by one thing. Um, which is the sort of thing you can say in a book, and then once it starts being tested in real life, I think it will not hold up. So what I would recommend, and I can put this in the, together yeah. in a little packet, is that there are a very good series of like YouTube videos that a friend of mine, uh, there's a charity based here in New York called Lifespan IO, um, that partnered with Kurzgesagt, uh, which is this YouTube channel that does like explanatory videos and mm -hmm. did like two, uh, a seven minute and then an eight minute YouTube video. The first one is about, is it worth the philosophy? Is it worth it to stop death? And the second one is like, what are some strategies that are actually being pursued to extend lifespan that I think is actually the best primer that I've seen in this space. That's great, well if we can, we'll get that around. Yeah. Um, so I read something recently, and I don't know the exact stat, but it was something like the younger generation of millennials are going to live 40% less um, because of our mental health, of what's happening in the world today, and just our general mental health. Where does 40% less? Some, uh, it's not something, it's not exactly, it's, there's a 40% stat in there somewhere. Okay. Um, so, so where does mental health fit in, this, in, in your world of... So we are in an epidemic of mental health right now. So, so if you look at rates of depression and like clinical anxiety and some of these other mental health disorders, and if you remove the graph titles and you show them to an epidemiologist from 1980 to, to, to 2020, the epidemiologist would suspect that he was looking at graphs of short-term viral infection, like like outbreak of exponential disease. Um, and part of that is that we've gotten better at diagnosing and, and treating these things, right? 40 years ago, nobody was seeing, ther or a few people were seeing therapists, and now everybody has their therapists, and everyone is more in touch with whether they're going through some signs of depression or anxiety. So diagnosis is one part of it, but the world that we live in has also changed dramatically. Um, and so mental health is very tough field from the perspective of drug development. And in fact, pharma has abandoned mental health, right? They came up with drugs like, like, like lithium and the SSRIs and these sorts of things in the 80s. Um, 
And some, sometimes they work a little, but really they're not that good. Uh, and we just don't understand the brain well enough to create good pharma pharmaceutical-like drug development pathways to treat these things. But, and there is a but, but it happens that there is a set of compounds that seem to be dramatically good at keeping people happier and curing multiple mental health disorders. And those are psychedelics. Hmm. Uh, and so the company that I started, Cambrian, actually has a sister company called Atai that was started by the same investor that, that founded the, the company with me. And Atai owns all of the intellectual property related to eight different psychedelics, and particularly psilocybin. So it encompasses every child of Yes, so the guy who found, funded me created a tie, which its first job was to create compass, compass pathways. Can you go back again? I lost you. Okay, sorry. Point. So, um, do you wanna ask I, a question or no, do you want no, me to no, just go no, back no, a just second? Just go back like a minute. So, so one minute back. So there's this guy named Christian Engermeyer, right? He's an investor, family <laughs> office guy. And, and his mission in life is he wants to live happy, healthy, and long. And so he started a company that took all of the IP around psychedelics, which had, have this great base of data that it can actually cure a lot of mental health disorders. And, and created a set of companies around that to do the first true clinical trials to use psychedelics to treat people with depression. And so to me, that's one half of the story, and it's not the half that I'm working on, right? So, so this company, Atai, that's like a sister company to Cambrian, they're working on mental health issues. And I think that this psychedelics thing is going to become, I think that the data under, underlying it um, from a clinical perspective is true. Like, we're going to end up, everyone in this room in five to 10 years, if we're not doing it already, is going to take psilocybin once a year as a prophylactic to depression to keep ourselves happier because it is just something that will work to give us new perspectives and make us feel more connected to our communities and be better. Um, and then once you've solved the happiness problem, then you have the problem of your body breaking down. And that's my job. Um, so, so I don't interact scientifically with the mental health piece that much from, from my perch uh, on top of my company that I started around longevity. But I think that without happiness, we have nothing. Um, and so I support all of these efforts to, to do other things. Right. I, would, I would encourage you to, we did a screening about two months ago of, what's it called? Fantastic Fungi. Fantastic Fungi, 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 um, which is, um, uh, I think they didn't want to call them. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, was, yeah. it was called mushrooms. Yeah. Uh, and which is, uh, and there was, we had a discussion afterwards with, uh, there was um, this guy, Bosis, who's um, at NYU and has been doing clinical trials with uh, people um, with PTSD or people who are in hospice and who are dying. And uh, he's been doing trials of psilocybin, LSD. And, you know, the, uh, I mean, the results are amazing. And um, uh, so I'd encourage you to, watch the movie, I think it's out now. Um, so we did a preview of it, but. Um, you can stream that. Yeah, but yeah, I think it, you can stream it. it. It's quite incredible. Like if any of the pharma pharmaceutical compounds for mental health worked 
a tenth as well as psilocybin works, they would like they would completely remake the the mental health industry. And I want you to, to uh, a point which James made here is really important, which is there's evidence that this is like that people in one session yeah. can like it can be transformative. So this is not a not a drug where you know here let me give you a uh, an IP stream of you know where you have to take this for the rest of your life. It's just like talking about like six hours and can trans transform the way people think about themselves in life and death. Um, what do you think motivates people who want to live longer? Like what's the main motivation? Is it fear? What a great question. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that because when I got distracted talking about death panels and stuff, I actually never got back to the second half of, of John's final question, which is about you know the philosophy of life extension. And, and so to me, that comes down to one sort of nebulous concept, which is meaning, right? We all have to create meaning for ourselves in an ultimately godless universe, or at least a, a universe where we have to define God for ourselves. Um, and, and I think that that's where, on an individual level, the desire for life comes from. Um, and so I think that the, the best conceptualization about this is actually from an existentialist author, Albert Camus, who, who wrote this novella called The Myth of Sisyphus. And so if you know the story of Sisyphus, this is the, the Greek who was condemned to Hades to forever push a boulder up a hill. And, and Camus does this existentialist breakdown of what the mental state of Sisyphus must be to be pushing this boulder up a hill all the time. And he comes to a very interesting conclusion, which is that Sisyphus must be happy. Um, and and the, the, the opening paragraph into this novel is, I think, the greatest summary of my personal philosophy on both life and life extension. And I'm gonna paraphrase because I don't have it perfect, but essentially what he says is, there is but one serious philosophical question. And until you find an answer for yourself to this question, anything else is just a game, an intellectual exercise that you're playing. And that question is suicide. Why do you not kill yourself today? And if you can answer the question of why I don't want to die today, then you have discovered meaning and you have discovered a reason to live and a reason to enjoy life. Um, and, and so I hope for most people, if they like truly dig down and ask, answer that question, if the only reason that, that they, if the reason they come up with for Camus' question is just, I'm afraid to do it, or I'm afraid of what's gonna happen after or something like this, I find that a really unsatisfying answer. And I think that more people should really probe themselves to come up with meaningful, impactful answers to this question. But do, do they? Like, what is the motivation now? Oh, like, uh, for the average person? Yeah. I think the average person is thoughtless about it. I, I think that there's, there's this other interesting aspect of psychology called terror management theory, which is basically that the concept of not existing is so abhorrent to an existing mind that we do everything in our power 
to either push it out of our minds or create elaborate fantasies that allow us to believe that our mind does not stop existing when it dies. Um, and, and by doing either of those things, and I think even a, a personal hero of mine, Carl Sagan, who's in some ways become the icon of humanism, um, is very famous for the saying like, oh, well, you know, we are star stuff observing the stars. And, and to me, that is one, I, I get a little probably overly emotional of, about this because it strikes me so much as an evasion, a, a core philosophy that's an evasion of the key question, um, which is like the tragedy of being existing to observe the stars for just a galactic flash and blink and then ceasing to exist almost immediately after coming into existence from a galactic scale, which is something I felt Sagan, for all of his brilliance and, and inspirational capacity, left out of his entire philosophy of humanism. This is a long, complex answer, but, but I, I, don't have, I don't think that people are thinking about this enough or in a good way right now. 